Great. So for those of you who've been kind of traveling and journeying along with us, um, we've recently started a study of the book of 1 Peter. Um, as his name says, the book was written by a guy called Peter, who was one of the apostles, one of Jesus' closest followers and friends, who was an eyewitness to the things of what Jesus did in his lifetime. And um, 1 Peter's been a great book. It's probably my, one of my favorite books in the New Testament because it, it talks about the realities of the Christian faith. And this series, I guess you just called Living Hope. And there's a reason for this, because we as a church, we as Forest Town Church, are aware that there is opposition to Christianity. Uh, there's always been disagreements against Christianity. There's always been things that have been counter or have a different view to what society offers. And not to be uh, aggressive or to be um, argumentative for any other way, but just the fact that Christ calls us to live a life that is different and is distinct and shines. And when, shine, when things shine, they shine into dark things as well. And there are things that this light exposes and as we do that in our lives, often what we will find is that we will find opposition, that we will find things pushing back against what Christ has called us and how he's called us to live. And 1 Peter is so helpful in not skirting around the issues, but actually going, you know what, it's a reality. If you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, if you place him as your Lord and as you choose to follow him, that trials and sufferings and challenges come because of who you follow. And that's a reality. And, and because of this, um, now in our day and age and with every generation, there have been challenges against our faith. And I don't think we're talking about losing our faith. What I want to encourage you today is not about that you feel like you want to give up, but I want to encourage you in a way this morning that helps you to see the reality and the magnitude and the glory and the magnificence of our faith in such a way that it encourages us to continue to persevere, to be resolute. In the past few weeks, um, Ant has, in the first two weeks of our series, Ant's kind of introduced who Peter is and why he writes this book. And he's started this amazing, Paul, um, Peter, sorry, starts this amazing uh, book with a, a praise and a glorious kind of song of, of, of adoration to what God has done to give us salvation. And last week, Clive so graciously took us through the next few verses where Peter goes, actually, yes, it is a great and glorious salvation we have. Amazing. But trials and suffering do come. And we have to be aware that they come. And these things, however, don't crush us. God even uses trials and sufferings and challenges to refine, to strengthen, and to build our faith, to make it even stronger. So the theme of 1 Peter chapter 1 really has been about the greatness of our salvation. The greatness of our salvation. He's, Paul, Peter's taken time just to um, read and to write to the, the church and to remind them of what you have, what you have deposited in you through the gospel is worth more than gold. It's worth more than any precious gift that you could ever receive on this earth. And I don't know about you, but sometimes... When I think of my salvation, I, I, I've been in church. I think my mum took me and my brother to church when I was about six, five or six years old, so primary school age. And we kind of went through um, primary school and through Sunday school and kind of grew up in the church in that way. And 
you kind of know Jesus died for you. You kind of know the truths and the things that are being sung about. You do creeds about uh, how the love of the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You know these things, but there's a moment, isn't there, when the knowledge of that or the understanding of that becomes a reality, a living, true reality. And it's like, wow, I've never seen this before, but suddenly it comes alive and it's a light. But there's also times when you've been in church, I think, where you kind of hear these things week on week, don't you? And you kind of go, yeah, I kind of know. And it becomes, I'm not going to say the word mundane, but it becomes common knowledge. And it becomes um, like, yeah, I know. Meh is the kind of the term, I guess, <laughs> most teenagers would use these days. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a tricky spot, isn't it? When we kind of know about the salvation of our Lord, we kind of sing about the wonder and we sing about the amazing glories, but yet sometimes the greatness of salvation doesn't necessarily take hold and spur us on. And this is why it's so encouraging. This is why we come to church. This is why we come to a community, because we need to know and we need to be soaked in and reminded and reinforced week on week, day on day, of the greatness of our salvation. Because sometimes if it comes a bit too common or we, we lose track, or we, our focus suddenly goes a slightly skew we lose the wonder and the greatness and all that God wants to accomplish. So out of introduction, really, the theme of today's message is salvation, the greatness of our salvation. And I'm reading from 1 Peter, uh, chap- 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. So just um, three verses. And let me just read them to you now, just as we start. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Father, as we um, have read your word, we pray, Lord, that just as I take this time, as we take this time to understand it, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that long to obey um, your word and what you have for us this morning. Give us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we think about the word salvation, it's a, it's a pretty big word that we use, isn't it, in the, Christians, in the Christian faith. Salvation. It kind of has to start with what are we being saved from? And what are we being saved into? And how are we being saved? And Peter, in the previous few verses, has already covered a lot about what salvation is. It's, uh, it's a gift from God. It's because of God's great mercy that we're born into a living hope. We're saved from judgment for our sin. We are saved from God's righteous judgment coming against sinful people. It's a salvation is an act of grace. Uh, it's undeserved mercy and kindness from God that we didn't initiate. Salvation is a rescue mission um, from death into life. Salvation required a sacrifice, a sinless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us. Salvation saves us from um, just looking on this earth and kind of saying, is this all that I'm going to live for? 
towards having an eternal vision and a view of who God is and his hope and his future for us and eternal inheritance. Salvation is something that is given to you, um, planted in you, given to you, and it can never be taken away because it is guarded by God's power. Salvation recognizes that God's perfect plan for our lives is worked out even in despite of suffering, pain, tragedy, and hardship for the Christian. And salvation also takes away, displaces our self-centered love. We all look after ourselves, don't we? It moves a self-centered love and it places in us a love for God and our Savior, Jesus. And those are all the things, the things, the themes that are contained within the first kind of eight to ten verses of 1 Peter. Pretty full and chunky, isn't it? The greatness of our salvation. And each week now, we want to gather around the truths of these. We've sung them already in how Clive's led us this morning about the beauty of the cross and how it saved us. And uh, we look upon his sacrifice. And I want this morning in this chapter, uh, in verse 10 to 12, to connect us to a bigger story. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because so much of our salvation, when we think about it, it's about me. It's about my sin. It's about my sinfulness. And these aren't wrong, by the way. These are all true. My sinfulness, my rebellion, my choice to walk away from God, but then God's love towards me and God's love towards um, each one of us and saving us and rescuing us. And these are all good things. These things that we need to hear and know and believe and take hold for ourselves. But Peter also wants us to give us a bigger vision, a bigger view of uh, this salvation story that doesn't just involve you, but places you inside a bigger story. And we read, and it's quite an a, a interesting way he does it, because I wouldn't have thought to do it this way if I was Peter, but I'm not Peter. Um, but it's interesting. Peter connects us to the salvation story that has a wider, bigger perspective, and he chooses to encourage the church, reminding, don't forget that the church is in the midst of suffering, discrimination, opposition. That's when Peter's writing to the, to the believers. And he asks us to consider our salvation in light of these four things. Okay, here they are. This is the outline of my message this morning. He asks us to consider our salvation in light of four amazing things. He says, consider your salvation in the prophets who long to see it. Secondly, consider your salvation through Christ who predicted it. Thirdly, consider your salvation from the angels who long and love to gaze at it. And fourthly, Consider your salvation through the Holy Spirit who makes it alive to us. So through the prophets, through Christ, through the angels, through the Holy Spirit. So let's start at the beginning, shall we? Let's start at how Peter encourages us through the prophets. So verse 10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what persons all time, the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Wow, that's a mouthful. Um, what is Peter trying to say? Prophets. I don't know if you know about this, but, but prophets, in the, when you look at the Old Testament, there are numerous um, writings, authors, who spoke about the glory that was to come, the salvation that was to come. You don't have to look very far to know that these prophecies were written in different languages, by different authors, at different times. 
It wasn't like one guy said, I'm going to write a prophecy, you write another one. These people were, didn't even meet each other. These were people, prophecies written over thousands of years, over 1,500 years apart. Prophets were God's spokesmen. They were the people who heard from God faithfully, with faith, they wrote it down and proclaimed it in their ears, in their times, the people around them, in their situations. They were the people who had the authority given by God to say, thus says the Lord. Therefore, they were kind of speaking on God's behalf. And um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we think about how God speaks to us now, we, we look at the word, we look at the Bible, and we, we hear his word and we read about it. And what we're reading is the words that were spoken through men thousands of years ago, or five, hundreds of years ago, depending when they were written. But Peter talks about this in the book to Peter, he says this, 2 Peter 1, 21, he says, no prophecy that was ever produced by the will of man, so no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as if they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter's saying here is that the Old Testament, the words that are written there weren't just written by men as if they just had some great ideas and just thought, okay, I'm going to write it down like a poem or a song or an oracle or a nice story. They were spoken from God as if they came along by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we read Old Testament prophecies, what we're invited to do is to believe that God has been speaking to men and women and asking them to write it down for thousands of years. What they spoke forth was something they spoke in their times, but it had an impact for something greater in the future. And um, if you've ever done the Bible course, it's a course which our friend Andrew Ollerton wrote, and as a church we've gone through it before. Andrew Ollerton, who's the author of the Bible course, talks about prophecy this way. He says that these men, um, these prophets, they kind of received this message from God, they wrote it down, they spoke it out, but they only kind of saw it in a two-dimensional, in a 2D view. They kind of saw what they saw at this time they wrote down you know, faithfully what it was. But what we get to see as people now living in the 21st century, hundreds of years gone, Christ has come. So many things have happened. The fulfillment of prophecy is that we see now their prophecies in 3D. We see it spoken at their time, but we see the impact and the fulfillment of it happening now in our times. And I want to just offer to you this, that because we see it in 3D now, we have a greater view of what they meant, what it actually uh, what it actually means for us. And I just want to just mention a few prophecies, just a few, um, very quickly, 18, if that's okay. Um, <laughs> there, apparently there are 300 about Jesus alone. These are just 18. Isaiah 7, 14 says that Jesus would be born, sorry, the Messiah would be born of a virgin 700 years before Christ was born that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, 500 years prior to Jesus was born. That the Messiah would be born in the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, about 1,700 years before it happened. The ministry would begin, his ministry would begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1, that he would work miracles, Isaiah 35. He would teach in parables, Psalms 6.78. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. He would be betrayed by a friend, Psalms 41 that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. He would be accused by false witnesses, Psalms 35. He would be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalms 22. He would be crucified alongside criminals, Isaiah 53. His garments would be torn apart 
and cast for lots, Psalms 22. His bones would not be broken, Psalms 34. He would be pierced, Zechariah 12. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53. He would rise from the dead, Psalm 16. Anyone made notes? No, okay. Um, as I said, these are just 18 prophecies about the Messiah. Apparently, there are 47 that, um, that would be, we would probably use as our core prophecies about the fulfillment of Christ. But apparently, there are even more, about 300 that uh, scholars would say point towards who the Messiah would be. And they are all fulfilled in one person. One person in history. I'm a bit of a maths geek. Um, and I remember as a teenager hearing this story. Um, it's about a statistician, mathematical statistician in America, who decided to go and calculate the probability of just eight, prophe eight prophecies would be fulfilled by one person in history. Just eight, okay, not 300, not 47, just eight. And, and this, this statistician, American statistician um, wrote a book called Science Speaks. So Peter Stoner, he says this, he discussed the statistical improbability of one man accidentally or deliberately fulfilling just eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. And he says this, that the chance of this happening, just eight prophecies happening in one person, being fulfilled by one person, is this. It's one in 10 to the power of 17. So that is one with 17 zeros. I wish I could put it on the screen right now, but that the fact that one person could fulfill just eight, just eight prophecies that were predicted or written down in the Old Testament. And Stoner, just to, this a bit of hard to kind of gather what 17 zeros looks like, isn't it? But let me just write this, let me just give you an example of what this is. And he writes this, the magnitude an illustration of how much of this is against such odds is this. If we were to take 1,000, uh, sorry, if we were to take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars, so coins, 10p coins, and we lay them across the face of the state of Texas, um, I'm not sure if you know how big Texas is, but Texas is about 2.8 times the size of the UK in terms of surface area. So if we were to take 10p coins, lay them across the um, the course of the United Kingdom, three times, two and a half to three times, lay them two foot deep, so one foot, two tip, full of coins. If we were to cover the whole state of Texas, or UK, 2.8 times, um, we were to mark one of these coins with a little black dot, a little X or something, whatever it is, stir the whole coins, send the blindfolded man, and tell him to go and find it. Travel as far as you want. Take as long as you want. Go left, right, whatever. It's your choice. You know, dig, um, climb mountains, go up and down, whatever you want to do. Go find that one coin. That is the statistical probability of Jesus Christ fulfilling just eight. Eight prophecies that were placed in the Old Testament. Why does this matter? It matters because the Old Testament speaks about one coherent, purposeful, historical person and one plan of salvation. It wasn't just made up on the spot. It wasn't just an idea that 
somebody just decided, hey, let's just uh, make up a salvation story. It's something that has been intentionally planned, foretold, fulfilled now. And we get to experience the beauty and the weight of that. Salvation is an intentional plan. It's an intentional act of grace. It's not an accident. It's a masterful plan inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then here it says the Spirit of Christ. It's a story that points towards Jesus as fulfillment. And because of that, all glory, all focus, all honor belongs to him. He is the hero. He is the person that you are invited to know, trust, believe, and put your faith in and experience him in reality. That is the greatness of the Old Testament prophecies. It's not just a few stories, and I'm guilty of this as well as a, as a little kid, just reading these stories. They point towards Christ, Jesus, on the cross. It's not just fickle ideas or concepts. These are deep, weighty, fulfilled truths that have deep meaning and wonder and glory. That's how Peter encourages you as the church this morning. Your, weight, your salvation is based on such glorious history, such weight, such magnificence that we sometimes just have to stop and think, Jesus, you are amazing. Holy Spirit, your wisdom is beyond search. God, your love for us is great. That's the first thing. The Old Testament prophecies talk about Jesus and his fulfillment, and that should encourage us in our salvation. Secondly, we see the lens of our salvation through Christ who predicted it. Peter points us out to these few amazing facts that the spirit of Christ himself, that's what's mentioned in 1 Peter 10, uh, 1 Peter 11, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, that Christ himself, the spirit of Christ, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years before his own death and res resurrection, actually predicted it himself. Um, Verse 11 says, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. So Jesus Christ has been contemplating his own suffering, his own plan of salvation, his own death for centuries. Some would argue maybe for eternity that God had a plan already. And I just want this to settle for a bit. Just think about this as we think about it related to our story. As far as we know, as far as we can conceive that God had a plan of salvation in his mind, Jesus has been thinking about it. He's been willing. He's been ready to give his life for your sins. For as long as God has been thinking about salvation, which is eternity, he's been thinking about you and your salvation, your rescue, your forgiveness, the cost, the glory. I don't know how that makes you feel, but for me, when I think about that, our salvation, it, it wasn't just an emotional moment that Jesus had in his lifetime. He's been preparing his love towards you for eternity past. His faithfulness towards you didn't just start when you were born. He was faithful before your generations. And what does that mean for us? It means that if he's faithful in the past, he can be trusted to be faithful now in the present. And he can be faithful to be trusted in the future. I hope you see that when we look at the past glory, Jesus' sufferings, 
we also see and look ahead to his glory. And we see that when Peter writes to the persecuted church in his day, he also writes to us right now, if you are feeling overwhelmed because of your faith in Christ, if you are feeling pressured from every side, from friends, family, colleagues, your workplace, um, those you are reaching out with Christ's gift of grace to, I want you to see and hear these words from Hebrews. It says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shames, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If God was faithful in the past, he'll be faithful in the present, and he'll be faithful in the future to bring you to glory. That is his promise. And I'm asking you this morning, do you see Jesus in his glory at the right hand of the Father, as it says in Hebrews? Do you see him um, in the midst of that? Is that your living hope in which you can secure yourself and tether yourself to when hard times come? Clive did such a good job last week in just explaining suffering and challenges. And he said something which really kind of um, gripped me. And, and it's, if we hold so tightly, sometimes the things of this earth, when they fail us, um, we're disheartened, aren't we? When we tether ourselves to the thing that we would hope would give us joy and satisfaction and everything that we think we need. And there, may be not be, there might not be bad things. It could be our family, our friends and things. But if they are our living hope, and those things fail us, then we are sorely disappointed. But if we tether ourselves to Christ, who is seated at the right hand and says, I'm going to bring you to glory, then we will never be disappointed. We have a living hope that we can tether ourselves to, and he is faithful to complete it. That's two, Christ who predicted it. We see him through his suffering and glory. Number three, how do we see our salvation? We should see it through the angels who love to gaze at it. Verse 11 and 12. Um, it's funny, isn't it? We don't see angels very often. Anybody seen any angels recently? <laughs> um, we don't really know what's going on in the heavenly realms, do we, sometimes, or in, this, in, in what's going on in heaven. I don't know about you. I didn't see many angels this week when I was driving around. Um, but angels are mentioned in the Bible. Angels are mentioned in the Bible. We often see them, actually, in church on the Christmas, little kids in white suits with wings, with a little halo. And, and we sometimes we see them in paintings, descriptive, with cherubims, bare bottoms, um, you know, cute and cuddly. Um, and our view of angels is, is amazing because what we see as an, in angels is that angels are, have been involved in the salvation story. They've been involved in the salvation story. We see them, um, maybe the clearest way is at Christmas time when we look at you know, the book of Luke and it says that they were singing, a, sing, when they announced Christ's birth to the shepherds, we hear their song, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased, Luke 2, 14. So we see glimpses of angels kind of entering our world and being involved in our world and being involved in salvation. And there's pictures as well in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, where there's a view of a throne in, and there's a view of heaven and there's a throne and heavenly hosts surrounding the throne where God sits and they're singing the song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. And we see this amazing picture and expanse of heavens 
and angels involved in worshipping God. And in the New Testament, in Revelations most notably, we see angels again singing the same song, holy, holy, holy. But they sing also a new song. And this is their song. They sing a new song and they are saying, worthy are you. And they're pointing towards Jesus. Worthy are you, Jesus, for you, Jesus, were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's Revelations chapter 5. And verse 11 and 12 of Revelation says this as well. We looked and we saw at the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, honor and glory and blessing. So that's what the angels are doing. The angels are in heaven, worshiping, glorifying, exuberating worship towards their God, towards the Christ, the sacrificial lamb, for all that he's done. And yet, there's this one dilemma. They haven't even experienced grace. Think about it for a moment. The angels aren't the recipients of the salvation that we have received. The angels are people who have been involved in salvation. They've helped give out salvation and declared it, but they're not the ones being saved, are they? Their ministry is to, and their work is to, to be mouthpieces for God and to do that, but they've just watched it played out. It's like they're the ones looking at it almost like as a third party, looking at it kind of going, wow, oh, wow, God's going to go down to earth? Oh, okay. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. He's going to die on a cross? Whoa, whoa, this, I, I don't, I, how's this going to end? How's this going to end? And, and they see him rise from the dead. This is the Christ whom they see. And what they see is a God who's holy and amazing and beautiful without sin and blemish become the sin laid upon him, the sin of the earth, conquering it on our behalf and rising again to victory and taking the rightful place in heaven again. But they haven't received that grace. They are observers of it. We, the people of God, the church, humanity are the recipients of it. And the angels look on it and they look on it and they long for understanding how could this be? For us, that should encourage us. If the angels are rejoicing, if our eyes were opened and our hearts are open to understand, to receive the glory of Christ dying on the cross for us and rising again, and the hope that is for us, how much more should we be encouraged by the angels who are just observers? And the wonderful point of the angels is that they're still involved. Do you know how they're involved? Let me show you. Luke, John, uh, Jesus says this in Luke. Jesus tells a parable of a lost coin. A woman loses a coin. She searches everywhere for it. She, she can't find it. She finds the coin. Finally, this one lost precious coin. She finds it. She calls her neighbors and says, look, I found this lost coin. Look at it. I found it. I found it. Come and celebrate with me. And Jesus says this, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels in front of God over at one sinner who repents. When you were saved, angels rejoiced. When your wife or your husband or your children saved, 
angels rejoiced. When your friend, your colleague at work, your family member who was far from Christ was saved and came to know him, the angels rejoiced. And over every single sinner who comes and repents and comes and follows Jesus, they are rejoicing in heaven. Man, we have a cheerleading squad in heaven right before us. Maybe they have pom-poms. Maybe they have, uh, you know, this thing when you pull and they, they, they fire out confetti. Maybe they've got all these paraphernalia, but they are rejoicing in heaven over every single sinner who comes. Do I have that rejoicing? Do I have that joyful expectation in my life over my friends, my colleagues who still have to come to know him? Over family members who we've been praying for for years, do I have that joyful expectation that when the angels are rejoicing, man, I'm going to join with them. One day they will come and I'm going to rely on God to do that work. So that we see salvation from the perspective of the angels who love to gaze at it. Fourthly and lastly, we see salvation through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who makes it alive to every one of us. Verse 12. The things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. For you to be saved, most probably, I know God can do anything, but most probably somebody told you about him, about Jesus, about what he did for you, about your state and your position before God, before about there is hope, about there is a saviour, about there is life everlasting. There is a God who loves you. It required someone to tell you that, didn't it? To inform you, to preach to you, to convey some information about this person, Jesus. And as I mentioned already earlier in the service, that this week, Young Life and a number of people in this church had the joy of being able to share four or five days with young people uh, 75 young people, um, and share the gospel with them over the course of four days or so. But that isn't what the, that isn't what the gospel alone is. It isn't just a load of people running out with a message and telling them everybody about it. What what who this Jesus is? It's empowered and um, motivated and energized and made real by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is the only one who can open the eyes of our hearts to know Christ. Paul says it this way, sorry, Peter's contemporary, Paul said it this way, that I didn't come to you with eloquent words or phrases. I didn't come to you with clever thoughts to convince you. He came with the working of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit has been working out salvation and continues to work out salvation for you even now. Let me give you a few examples. The Holy Spirit awakens our desire for God. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were dead in our transgressions. We had no even desire to know God. We were dead to him. But the Holy Spirit awakens us and makes us alive. The Holy Spirit reveals the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit secures us in the love of the Heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit is our seal as our guarantee for our future inheritance. 2 Corinthians. The Holy Spirit is the person whom we can know his presence, we can know his comfort, we can know his insurance and his direction in our lives right now. The Holy Spirit is the one who we experience and gives us the life-changing power to become more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who walks with us and gives us boldness to proclaim the gospel, 
the good news to those so that others may also experience the joy of knowing him. So if you are in that place right now where, I don't know, if, like many of us, we have friends and we have people we're thinking about or we're, we're thinking, man, I've, years I've been trying to you know, find opportunities, just anything, a little glimpse. You know, maybe they'll ask me on Monday, what did I do on my weekend? I can tell them I went to church and maybe that will spark a conversation. And, you know, maybe you're in that place where your salvation now, you're wanting to share that with other people. Or maybe you're in a place like I have been as well, where I'm just happy in my own salvation right now. But I want you to be connected into the bigger story. That there is salvation for you, but there is salvation for the world. And we are entrusted with the gospel to go and tell others. And to walk, not in our own strength, but in the power and the steps of the Holy Spirit. We need this, church. We can't just be about this gospel for me and my salvation. We need to be connected to the bigger story of the prophets, of Christ, of the angels, of the Holy Spirit. Because that is what Christ has called us to obedience to, to walk with him and to walk, help others walk towards him too. So this morning, maybe we can rise and we can stand. Um, as just as we close, I want to invite you, if you want to experience the greatness of the salvation in a way that fuels you to go and want to tell others, if you want to just be reminded again of the salvation is yours but needs to be shared to other people, I want to invite you to stand and invite God to fill you so that you have that power, that authority, that joy. Tell others about Jesus as well. I don't know what that looks like for you. Um, I'm not saying you come like suddenly you become a tele-evangelist and you start doing all this stuff or you start creating you know, mass rallies or something. But in the simple things that God has equipped you, the places he's placed you, I believe that Holy Spirit wants to work through you to tell others about him and to also take hold so that they can take hold of this salvation and Christ can become theirs too. And that's what I'm calling you today, church, to be, to be willing, to be available, to walk with the Holy Spirit as he directs you. So if you're willing, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. Maybe with every eyes closed, we can just offer our hands up just as a sign of wanting to receive that empowerment from God this morning. God, I thank you for the book of Peter. Thank you that Peter reminds us of our great salvation, even in the midst of challenge and suffering and pain and hardship. And Father, I thank you for loving us, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son as a plan of salvation. And Jesus, I thank you for the perfect life that you lived that I could not live, for suffering and dying for my sins, but also rising to life and conquering the grave that I might live. Thank you, Jesus, that you are now arisen, you're alive, and because of that, I am now alive, and I'll arise with you one day in eternity. Thank you, God, for the encouragement of the angels, cheering us on, giving, giving us the joy of telling others about you, about Jesus the Savior. Would you be with me right now? Make me brave. Give me compassion. Help me to tell others about the treasure that I've found in you. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening my eyes to see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and for giving me the joy of salvation. Give me the joy 
of seeing other people also enter into salvation. Thank you that this is your work and your glory. We offer ourselves to you now, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.